Hey everybody, this is Frank Rains Jr. from History Through the Eyes of Faith. Just wanted to give you a heads up to check the link in our bio for Kofi. It's a way that you can go and support the podcast if you like what you're hearing, and also a way to find some merchandise and some extra content. So check out the link in our bio, head over to Kofi. It's a great way to support the podcast. Did I miss anything, Ange? Oh, add in. You can also comment there, ask questions, and join us in a chat room. Oh, wow. And there's so that you can chat with us. Anyway, check out Kofi. The link is in our bio. I'm passionate about teaching this material because I think that we have to understand history to understand what's happening today. Pork tenderloins, only $3.29. And how did that become the way I experience church now? Hey, listen, you know, you've got the creation, we've got um, Abraham, we've got Moses, we've got all these things that have happened. We're now part of that story. Because to me, the <laughs> This is History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast with Angie Ferris. I'm your host, Frank Ranks Jr., along with producer Wes. We're glad you're here. Hey, you found it. Episode 58. This is Frank Rains Jr., History to the Eyes of Faith podcast, and I'm here with Angie Ferris. Say hello, Angie. Hello, Angie. All right. Angie Ferris is the source of all this great content. We're excited that you are back listening. Episode 58, but we, were in, we wouldn't be able to have this out there in the etherwebs, interwe- interwebs. A world without Wes the Sketch. Wes is here too. He's producer Wes the Sketch. Producer Wes is here in the History Through the Eyes of Faith studio episode 58. All right. So we've got that out of the way. That's the little intro talk. Okay. I want to jump right into something. We ready? Oh, what a look. I'm ready. <laughs> Let's go. I happened to stumble upon a review of our podcast. No way. Yeah. On Apple Podcast from May 17th of 2022. So not too long ago. Not too long ago. Um, I won't read the whole thing. I'll just, it's pretty sizable review. Wow. And it's from, the username is this young man. Gives us four stars. But he gives us a little feedback. And he says, uh, um, I know f- uh, the biggest thing for me is shorter anecdotes. I know folks like to have hosts who are relatable, and I think there's value in sharing about your life, but I'd like to get to content faster. I've gotten to where I just skip the first 10 to 12 minutes, because for the most part of stories don't have a direct relevance to the topic, and I don't really have time to listen to all that. My time is valuable. Others might like it, but do what makes the most sense for your audience. But in the meantime, I'll probably keep skipping the first 10 minutes. Ha ha ha. You know what, this young man? We're into it now. Two minutes in, you're missing it. Go, Ange. I'm not ready to go. Well, no anecdotes. No, is that going to be your new rule they now? Make the because comment, of one comment, you're going to just... They make the comment, I'm on it. I want what the listener wants. Okay. <laughs> not to argue with this young man, because I think he's right. Maybe some people are into it. Maybe some people are on, aren't. And honestly, we have had this discussion before. Yeah. Because I've had long. other people tell me that that's what they like about it. They're into the banter and the carrying on and the history. and the, I, But I'm with you. I think it should be so shorter. <laughs> so, so why don't we put in the banter and the carrying on, just sprinkle it around. That way, yeah. that way we jumping into 58 
And there may be a little surprise. You might get a little nugget in here. Yeah. But some banter. And you know what? This young man, I'm not offended by your comment at all. No, I'm not either. I just want to trick you. And now you're missing it. Because now you're going to miss a good four to seven minutes. <laughs> Have you not read that? No, I'm not on Apple Podcasts. I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, I. I'm very grateful for iPod it. Dead. Well, it's cool. I'll, I'll look forward to reading it. Yes, I would be very grateful yeah, for it, it too. It was positive. More comments. It was Come a on. positive review. It was just some constructive criticism. Which is good. Is his, a good his last thing. paragraph, other than that, I'm pretty much here for it. I think Angie does a good job of presenting information, and Frank keeps the levity in and asks at times insightful questions at times <laughs> <laughs> that I think represent well what some of the thoughts your audience has while listening. Also, I do appreciate the mystery gifts. Oh, that's interesting, because that's one of the things I thought were just weird. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Do we have a mystery gift today? Yes, we do. Reappearing. She does, she does the thumb over, hey, check it out, mystery gift. <laughs> mystery gift. But I also have, I mean, I don't know if we'll get to it in this episode. I won't, I won't even bring it up. Well, I've got some good travel stories, too, that I don't, I've been saving. So that'll be cool. All right. Yeah. So what was 57? 57 was about monasticism. <laughs> Which is not a disease. No, but isn't there a, a term like when something monasticized? <laughs> What's the word? I could have told you before you said it. And now I'm laughing and I can't. It is. It has to do with metastasized. Metastasized. That, yes. that's Something has metastasized. It's, I think that means it's a cancer that's grown or that's spread to other parts of your body. A cancer's not funny. Cancer's not funny. But the fact that I confused monasticism with metastasized is funny. It, I think it's metastasized. It's a word very similar to that if that's not it. Oh that's my That's why gosh. I got confused in episode 57 or 6 when you're like, you know what metastasism is? And I'm like, I think it has something to do with cancer. But I didn't want to say that. Oh, <clears throat> yeah. No, it was, we were talking about monks in 57. Yeah, and also I heard from a listener that said, this was somebody I know, but they were telling this, you don't know how many times during the podcast I'm sitting there screaming out the right thing that we can't think of. I said, well, you really should go to Kofi and put the comment up there. I know that Because happens. that would be helpful. And join our chat room so we can chat about all that stuff. Yeah, I know. And it's crazy to me how things just run out of my brain. Like, they just run. Like, I see them go, and I can't remember that what that was. I just saw it, the backs well, of it. I had, a, I had a dream. Here we go. No, I thought we were going right to the we content. We are. We are, but I can't pass this up. I had a dream that I was stranded without my phone. Oh, that's a nightmare. And there's no, you don't know numbers anymore. Some about things going out of your brain. Yeah. You don't know anybody's phone number. Do you know your kids' phone numbers? Um, I'm going to, I know two of them. I know two of them. There's four kids, but I know two of their numbers because I've had to create some stuff the last couple of days that involve their phone numbers. I don't know all of them, no. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, so things go out of your brain. And so people listening will say, hey, we know that. And we know you know it, but we don't. We can't remember it. So monasticism. And what did you, did you uh, learn? What did we talk about with we that? We talked about, well, we ended it talking about St. Benedict. Yes, right? that was, yes. Well, because he was like, the, mm -hmm. well, the one that you brought up is maybe like the first patriarch of monk. Yeah, he was, he was really... Yes. 
But you talked a lot about how... He was not a first monk by any means. No. But he, this rule that he put together then shaped monasticism throughout the Middle the Ages Benedictine and beyond. Rule, yeah. yeah. And, and I learned that um, within the first century after Christ, um, there was a decision... The monks were really led to live a life that dealt with sacrifice, to live a life Christ-like. And when Christianity became easy to be a Christian, when it became popular, when it became, hey, the, the emperor's faith, and hey, it can provide us social status, even though we may believe it or not, we can say we're Christians and everything will be good. The monks kind of created a more solemn, sacrificial approach to their faith. Yeah, and I think another way of saying that that I'm not sure came out in the last episode. Before that point in time, when there were persecutions and there were martyrs, and this was what I was trying to convey from listening to Eusebius, the general Christian, the average Christian, the person who hadn't been persecuted, okay, was inspired by these people who were willing to give their life for their faith. And so there was this this place of inspiration and devotion. Well, then when there were no longer martyrs, when no one was being persecuted for their faith, like some of the places that we live today, Mm. where's the inspiration come from? And so the inspiration came from these folks who were willing to leave a life of comfort, a life of security, to go and live a life of devotion. Yeah. You know, and so it was, it was a, uh, that word aestheticism we were talking about. And I don't want to say deeper because you can have a, a deep faith, but a focused intention on their faith without worldly distraction. Yeah. That brought about inspiration for others and, and a lot of other things that we'll see as we. And when we got to the end of the episode, I remember asking you, how I, I made a comment that how are they reaching others if they're living in this solemn, devoted life? You're like, oh, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. That's the story. That's the big story. When I arrived here to record today at the studio, I told you I was excited, right? So that's what we're getting to do? It's just so cool how all the pieces start coming together. And it's not just a one. We'll be talking about it in a little bit in this episode and much more in the next. Um, and then everything going forward since then. So... It's cool. Well, that's where we're going. We talked about Benedict, and then you said there was another monk. Yeah, that's where we're going. Yeah. We're going to be talking about. Yes. I want to jump back two episodes real quick. Talked about Justinian the Great. Mm -hmm. He was an emperor of Rome. Eastern Empire, yes. Eastern Empire. And I was trying really hard on that episode. Remember me telling you to. Text me something or copy and paste it and text it. I wrote it down. Byzantine and Eastern Roman emperor, unifier, the empire, and the Christian religion, protector of the holy Catholic and apostolic church, maintainer of the Christian faith, servant of God, and executor of his will, your grace, Justinian the Great. One do. Are you happy now? I'm happy now. Because... In Game of Thrones, they would do this whole intro of the king, protector of the realm, yeah. 
Keeper of the Duck. Anyway. Well. I just wanted to do that. So now I did it. If you are looking at some period of history that involves what was the Byzantine Empire, which existed, as we have talked about, from, from Rome all the way to 1453. I think that was the date we were mm-hmm. saying over and over again. Um, then that, what you just read, was the, was, Justinian was the, was the one who cemented that. We talked about he took Constantine's ideal, ideal is a good way to put it, and cemented it. So this, this sense that the emperor is the protector of the Christian faith in reality. And so when you start looking at the way things move in and out of that place in the world throughout history, that really helps you interpret what you're seeing. Gotcha. That when you're talking about the emperor there, you're not just talking about, like, we don't have any concept of that. You're not, you're not just talking about somebody who just happens to be the ruler in charge. They are the protector of the Christian faith. So another question that comes up in 1453, when that empire falls, what happens? There's that, no protector. But we'll see how the story goes from there. But you can see why that would be an issue. And... And also, we'll come to this in a few episodes. I'm not sure exactly how many, depending on where I put it in, but talking about the difference between um, the Eastern and the Western churches. Because I would think the vast majority of the people listening to this podcast, although we're in many countries outside the United States, the vast majority of our audience is inside this country, are familiar with the Western church. And so talking about, so what does that church look like if the government head is the protector of the church? And what happens with the church? So we'll be talking about that some as we go on to. So so. I I just jumped back to 56. So 56 was kind of the end of a historical timeline. Yeah, looking over at the Eastern Empire and kind of getting an idea, because that, you know, one of the things that we talked about with Justinian is how he went over and tried to re- take in the West, reestablish the West. And so that was the last effort to really do that. And then we moved to 50, episode 57, which was really kind of almost, it stood on its own. It, it was about monasticism, but it dated back all the yeah, way to Yeah, Benedict 100. is of this time period, just prior to Justinian. Oh, okay. You know what, I don't remember his dates, but he's, he's in that 4th, 5th century time period. Mm-hmm. And... um or 6th century time period. And so, but to talk about him, we had to talk about monasticism, which has roots back to early Christianity. Okay. And so now here we are. Yes. So we're going to, uh, I have a few comments and um, you just some more information on monasticism. And it's, let me just say this about this topic. I'm going to talk about this from a lot of different directions. It's like if you have something in the middle of the room that you're trying to describe and you go around to each corner and you do a description from the corner, there's going to be overlaps. There's going to be things we bring up that have been brought up before, but a lot of this, I want to give all this information so we can kind of swim in it for a while and get an overall feel of what this is like and how it influenced the Middle Ages, okay? Because it's, Mm. it's, it's a pivotal point big piece of information it kind of starts pulling together all the things that we've been talking about to this point so 
a sketch. This is a quote, and I'm pretty sure this is from uh, Turning Points, but I'm not going to swear. A sketch is not the best way to treat the complex history of monasticism during the European Middle Ages. A sketch. A sketch, like just lightly sketching it. Okay. Like what I was talking about, going around the room describing it from, okay? But a sketch may be enough to suggest the great importance of monasticism as sustaining and expanding the church in that era. Yeah. Monasticism sustained and expanded the church in that era of the Middle Ages. Okay, so that's a pretty big statement there Mm -hmm. that we're going to keep talking about from different directions. In the first instance, the missionary expansion of Christianity was unthinkable apart from the activity of monks. There's part of your answer right there. The missionary expansion of Christianity during the Middle Ages, which was the only time then, right? was unthinkable apart from the activity of monks. A fine Is that su- saying that without the monks there wouldn't have been missionaries? It's hard to think about how there would have been how how Christianity would have expanded in the Middle Ages had there not been monks. Okay. You can't think about how that would have happened had there not been monks. It would be almost impossible. Yes. At least in our view of history, like what we can see. A fine survey of world missions by Stephen Neal, that's an author, who himself served as a missionary in India. I thought this was some interesting information. He divided the missionary history of the Middle Ages into a 500-year period. Now, from 500 to 1,000, and then again from 1,000 to 1,500. A lot of people look at the Middle Ages as 500 to 1,500. Which is, I think, what you've done. Yeah. So... The first period, the 500 to 1,000, in which the main task was to draw the barbarians into the Christian orbit. Okay, so we've been talking about... Convert barbarians to Christianity. To draw them into the Christian orbit, yes. That means convert them to Christianity. Well, and maybe a little bit more, or even not convert them as much as draw them into it, get them into that way of thinking. And then the second half those 1,000 to 1,500, in which the great task was to turn nominally Christian Europeans into genuine believers. The key element in both of these gigantic efforts was monasticism. Okay, In Neil's first phase, that drawing them into the orbit, monks of several kinds did the pioneering work that was necessary to spread news of Christianity beyond the settled boundaries of the role old Roman Empire northward, westward, and eastward into barbarian Europe. Beyond the settled boundary of the old Roman Empire, northward, westward, and eastward into barbarian Europe. Celtic missionaries were pioneers. Celtic up there, Ireland, Scotland up that way. With Patrick's preaching in Ireland during the 5th century as the vanguard. Later missionaries from England and Scotland combined Celtic fortitude with Benedictine order in using monastic foundations as a way of anchoring missionary outreach. Don't try to make sense of that whole sentence, but just realize these things are coming together. Celtic fortitude, commitment with Benedictine order and monastic foundations as a way to anchor everything together. So we're throwing out the different we're we're throwing out that idea that monasticism is somehow 
pulling Christianity together in the Middle Ages and pulling these barbarian people into Christianity. Okay? And we're going to continue to talk about how that is. The missionary effectiveness of the monks usually depended as much upon their plain virtues as upon more highly visible exertions in preaching or teaching. So it wasn't just what they were saying, but what they were doing. It was more about what they were doing. Yeah. For a, mon- for a monastery to be established in a pagan area allowed the local population to see the application of Christianity to daily existence. How does Christianity apply to daily existence? You watch the monks. A monk, as monks, tilled the soil, welcomed visitors, and carried out the offices of study and daily prayer. So arose the saying that the monks civilized Europe with cross, book, and plow. That's a saying that you might have heard before if you studied history. Cross, book, book and, and plow. Okay? I like the Amish. Wonder what kind of model they're following there. You gave me a very sarcastic expression. I didn't mean to, to do that. Sorry. No, not that what you're saying was wrong, but I wonder. Hmm. So you can see how the monastery and the monks were uniquely set up to do that. If virtually all cross-cultural proclamation of the gospel in the Middle Ages was done by monks and friars, which I looked this up, friars are like monks in that they are devoted to a religious life. The difference is that a friar lives and works among the regular people in society, while a monk lives in a secluded, self-sufficient group of monks. Oh, so I could be a friar. They're still devoted to the religious life, but not separated in a cloister of other monks. But And they're good, you know, for potatoes, shrimp. Mm, a friar. If virtually all cross-cultural proclamation of the gospel in the Middle Ages was done by monks and friars, if that's the case... So learning was virtually a monastic monopoly. Learning was a monastic monopoly. Even in the time of Benedict, other monastic leaders had grasped the importance of preserving the critical documents of the Christian past. The monks became the ones who preserved the documents of the Christian past. They were like the maesters. Yeah. Isn't that, so we talked about the copying Mm-hmm. And how even if they weren't studying the book, they were still in the book. Oh, I don't know if we said that. Okay, that might be coming up. I'm getting what we've already talked about confused with what is in the notes that I've prepared for today. So then we might be coming upon that again. Okay. So that's just a that's just like um, taking that concept of monasticism and that Benedictine rule and what we talked about there and pulling it into the Middle Ages and saying, hey, this is how this is going to play out in the Middle Ages. So that's just like a rough overview that I did right there. And then we're going to dive deeper. But now we're going to talk about a particular person who had a big role Mm -hmm. in bringing all of that about. One of the earliest Benedictine monks was a man named Gregory. Like Benedict, he was from an old and wealthy Roman family. And if we remember back talking about Rome, Rome was all built on the family. And there were certain families, this I can't remember if it was 100 or 150 families that were just kind of like ruling families that were in. And when those things started to fall apart, it all started to fall apart. Mm-hmm. So he was one from one of these old wealthy families. I think, I, yeah, senatorial family. Gregory was born about 540 A.D. Okay. Am I remembering right that uh, Nicaea was 523 or 423 and 451, right, was Chalcedon? Okay. Yeah, that's going to bug me. But anyway, 
Gregory was born about 540 A.D. from an old and wealthy senatorial family of Rome and was educated for government service. So he was Mm -hmm. educated to be in the government. He could hardly have stepped on the page of history at a more angry time. In his childhood, Rome changed hands over and over again. He was 14 in the year 554 when Narcissus became Viceroy of Italy under the Emperor Justinian in Constantinople. Okay, so that's when Justinian comes back, pulls the pieces of the West back in for a short period of time. And so that was when he was 14 in 554 when that happened. Then at last, with the Visigoth rule over Italy destroyed, a few brief years of peace followed before the savage Lombards began their campaign of churches, slaying bishops, robbing monasteries, and reducing cultivated fields to a wilderness. So there's this period in there before the Lombards attack. He's living through all of this. Rome was clearly no longer the burning metropolis Ambrose and Augustine had known. The city of the Caesars was fast becoming the city of the popes, and it was Gregory's faith, fate to appear at the hour of transition. Suddenly, at the age of 33, Gregory found that the Emperor Just, Justin had appointed him prefect or mayor of Rome, the highest civil position in the city and its surrounding territory. The whole economy of Rome the grain supplies, the welfare program for the poor, the construction of buildings, baths, sewers, and riverbanks rested on Gregory's shoulders. So he's like the mayor and having to deal with all that. To make the burden even heavier, his appointment in 573 came just as both the Pope and Narcissus died. So the guy who was viceroy over Italy dies and the Pope dies. Gregory was never comfortable with worldly power, however. He preferred the solitude of a monastic cell. Within a few years, he stepped down from public office and broke with the world. Upon the death of his father, he spent the greater part of his personal fortune in founding seven monasteries. He distributed um, the rest in alms for the poor. So, founded seven monasteries with his fortune and distributed the rest to the poor. Then laid aside all vestiges of rank and transformed his father's palace into a monastery dedicated to St. Andrew. He exchanged the purple toga, which I guess is the ruler, toga, somebody in administration, for the coarse robe of a monk and began to live with extraordinary asceticism, eating only raw fruit and vegetables, praying most of the night, wearing a hair shirt, throwing himself Mm. into the many duties of a Benedictine. He had never been strong, and now unceasing fasting ruined his digestion and played Havoc with his heart, yet Gregory looked upon these years as the happiest of his life. All right. So I'm trying to get to what he did other than just quit. So this is the background story. Okay. Well, no, he hasn't quit. He's gone to be a monk now. Yeah, but he's not eating well. So he was raised. (laughs) He's not taking care of himself. He was raised to be a government, government magistrate and then appointed to this position and then had to run all these things. And then he steps down from that. And becomes a monk and distributes his fortune and founds a monastery and mm-hmm. fasting and praying. Gregory's gifts, however, could not remain hid. In 479, Pope Pelagius II made him one of the seven deacons of the Roman Church and sent him as ambassador to the imperial court in Constantinople. So now he's been sent by the Pope to Constantinople as an ambassador. His political training and executive ability fitted him eminently for just this post. He returned in 585, which is six years later, and was appointed abbot of his convent, St. Andrew, but remained available for important public business. So now he's appointed the head of his 
his monastery convent. But Gregory was not left to lead a quiet life in the monastery. The Pope in Rome needed someone to go as his representative to Constantinople and handle business with the emperor. Gregory took the job and says that that's just a repeat paragraph of the same thing. Um, sometime after his return to Rome, pl- plague broke out in the city. Okay, so now we're going to talk about mm-hmm. that. Early in AD 590, Rome was in agony. The city suffered through the tragedies of floods and the atrocities of wars only to be smitten by the relentless spread of the plague. Men felt hardly more than a little soreness of the throat. Afterward came the black eruptions and a swift death. Mm. The carts were piled high with corpses. People went insane. Rome became a desert, and the Pope himself, Pelagius II, died screaming in agony. Bring out your dead. (laughs) Does not look good, does it? Bring out your dead. And what is that line from? From Monty Python. Okay, there we go. They're loading people out. Not dead. Bring out your dead. I'm feeling like better. He's not dead. He's just resting. It's, um, yeah, that's a plague that happens later yeah, in the Middle uh, yeah, Ages. Cause, yeah, because that's uh, yeah. not Rome. Right. It's For uh, six months, no pope ruled in St. Peter's Basilica. When I have a question, though. You go back to St. Andrew. We didn't talk about St. Andrew, did we? Why did I say St. Andrew? Because Gregory was of the St. Andrew. No, they named his convent St. Andrew. For St. Andrew. Yeah, there's tons of saints we haven't talked okay, about. Okay, I just wanted to make sure we didn't talk about St. Andrew. There's a lot. We just And we name it St. Kevin. <laughs> oh. There's tons of saints. This is St. Darren. Okay. All right. The Pope has died screaming in agony from the plague. Pelagius II is dead. And for six months, six months, no pope ruled in St. Peter's Basilica. When church leaders decided to elect a monk named Gregory, he refused the office and even fled from the city, hiding in the forest until he was found and dragged back to Rome. Come on, Greg. After notifying Constantinople, officials consecrated him St. Peter's successor on September 3rd, 590. Gregory. Gregory. He's kicking and screaming, though. He didn't want any part of this. No, but he is now the pope. He's now the Pope. Gregory was a mild, a most unlikely candidate for greatness. Fifty, balding and frail, he had <laughs> no craving for the papal office. This is, I'm really wanting to know where this is going. He complained that he was so stricken with sorrow that he could scarcely speak. Yet he began his administration with a public act of hum- humiliation because the plague had taken the life of his predecessor. Seven processions filed through the streets for three days. Prayers were said, hymns were sung, but to no immediate avail. The plague continued to ravage the city. Then mercifully, it seemed to subside. So he's, they're doing all these processions and prayers. and You said a display of public what? Uh, humiliation. What, what did it, what, what? That is like um, wearing sackcloth and ashes and walking through the streets and praying and... That kind of thing. I don't know if he had on sackcloth and ashes, but it's that idea of, of, of taking on humility, okay. of humbling yourself before others. Okay. Okay, so he's humbling himself before others and God and leading the people in processions and hymns and prayers through the streets, praying for the plague to be removed. So a later legend traced the staying of the calamity, the staying of the plague, the stopping of the plague to Gregory's action 
and told of the appearance of the archangel, archangel Michael, who put back his drawn sword into its sheath over the mausoleum of the emperor Hadrian. So there was a mausoleum that was built and was called Hadrian's tomb, okay, in Rome. And so the legend was that the archangel Michael was seen putting his arrow back into his sheath and the plague was ending over Hadrian's tomb. Since that time, Romans have called it the Castle of St. Angelo. They adorned it with the statue of an angel. Tourists can still find it on the banks of the Tiber today. It is a museum of the Vatican in Rome. And Wes has a picture to throw up of that. Okay. And we're going to have that up on our Instagram account. And if Angie really gets her act together, we'll have it in the gallery on Kofi. But it's cool. I've been there. There it is. And that picture is actually taken from the Vatican. That is a a wall, a pathway that runs from the Vatican to the Castle to St. Angelo. And that was a way for emergency place for the Pope to go when he needed to escape and go hide over there. But look, you see the angel up on top? Mm-hmm. And that is from this vision. And so it's called the Castle to St. Angelo. That's kind of cool. So you go yeah. to Rome today, you see that. How that, old is that? I know the back state. Well, uh, maybe Wes can find that out while he's looking because it was Hadrian's tomb. You can see when the Castle of St. Angelo was built. And have you ever watched, what is the, um, just leaving me, Tom Hanks is in the movie. Elvis. No, it's, the, yeah, he's in that movie too. It's the, um, the mystery series with the Da Vinci Code. Da Vinci Code. Thank you, the, listeners. The, the Da Vinci Code is so cool. They go there. Like one of the final scenes is is it in? Is that the name of the first movie? Mm-hmm. Okay, one of the final scenes is in that place. So it's mm. really cool. All of those things in that movie are neat. If you've ever been to Rome to see that, so I don't know if Wes is finding any information. It's on okay. It's built, okay. But I thought that was kind of cool. One thirty-five A.D. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Under the Emperor Hadrian. So they saw that in, uh, they saw this vision. That's what the rumor goes, and that goes back to Gregory. So tying history together, right? Okay. So as Pope, Gregory did much to promote the founding of new monasteries all over Europe. So this is where he connects. So we know that he was, had these excessive administrative skills. And he was gifted in arranging and business and all of this. And then he gets drug kicking and screaming. He wants to be a monk. He's practicing the Benedictine order, been in time and prayer, and he gets dragged into being the Pope. And so then what does he do? He does much to promote the founding of new monasteries all over Europe. If you go back to what we talked to at the beginning when we started this, monasteries become the glue that starts pulling everything together. And Gregory is the guy who does much to promote the founding of new monasteries all over Europe. He sent missionaries to most of the Germanic kingdoms in Northern Europe to found new monasteries and convert as many of the Germans as possible to Christianity. He used his experience as an administrator to reorganize the affairs of the church so that they were more efficient. He is also remembered for his organization of church music into the form we call today a Gregorian chant. And there. It is. Yes. And so. Gregorian chant. Wes has a little blurb of a Gregorian chant to play for us. We're listening. Yes. And so what was the point? 
Okay. So we'll come back to that again. I, I love Gregorian chants. I wanted him to keep cool, playing it. Isn't that cool to listen to? So that was a summary with a little bit of a story in there of Gregory. We're going to continue to talk about Gregory and talk about um, his place in history. Rome was a symbol of the continent. What we now call Europe arose like a phoenix from the blazing ruins of a devastated empire. What we now call Europe arose like a phoenix from the blazing ruins of, of a, a devastated, devastated empire. empire. And more than any other force, it was Christianity that brought life and order out of the chaos. Oh, my goodness. Dun, da, da, da. A thousand da, years. Da, 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 da. A thousand years. What about it? Right? That's what you're talking about. Over a thousand years, from yes. 500 to 1500. Well, yes. And I think the biggest, well, yes. So let me read that it sentence again. It was Christianity. Again. What we now call Europe arose like a phoenix from the blazing ruins of a devastated empire. We understand what that means now, right? Because we've been talking about barbarians. We've been talking about all the changes. We talked about Rome. So if you had read that sentence 12 episodes ago, that wouldn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. But we understand what that means. And more than any other force, it was Christianity that brought life and order out of the chaos. Now, per that author. And several others. Okay, I'm not saying that's that. a I'm good just, sim summary sentence. I'm just going to say, would, would most historians agree with that statement? Or a majority of historians? I, I can't honestly answer that because... I don't know how history is taught now because I haven't been in a history class in 40 years. Yeah. 35 years. Okay. 50 years. At the, no, it hasn't been that long. At the uh, time I was there. Okay. Yes. They would agree. If you study history, now they wouldn't probably put it that way because they wouldn't want to lift up Christianity. Yeah. But it was the church that was a united factor mm -hmm. that. But we're going to talk about the details of that for some time. Um, Speaking of high school. I wasn't. But anyway. Well, I, I was putting, doing, I'd made a joke about 50 years. And you're like, no, it hasn't been that long. You said 30 years. When, it was learning, in college when I was learning history. history. Yes. Okay. Well, Even graduate mind. school. Then never mind. So the question is, how did that happen? What did Christianity bring to the devastation to erect a new order called Christian Europe. What did happen? So that's where we go from, for the next several hundred years. That's what we're going to be talking about, among other things. So now we're going to talk. So Gregory has a place and a role in that. And he was Pope from 590 to 604. Okay. Only 14 years. The church enlisted the Celtic and Benedictine monks to serve as a spiritual militia for winning the barbarians to the Christian faith. Spiritual militia. Yeah. It turned to the papal office to provide some stable structure for a new way of life. So because Gregory was at the helm of this and he was pope, he was able to provide a stable structure that could be spread through all these areas because... He had a connection into all these communities in that the churches, the bishoprics, the monasteries were already established or were being established. But there, were, there was a church in all these places. Previously, the thing that held them together was the Roman Empire. The, Roman, the Western Roman Empire is gone. There's not a Western Roman emperor. And we talked about 
Leo, we talked about the rise of the papacy. Well, now Gregory has stepped into that role and is using his spiritual militia, Mm. his monasteries, or not his, but he has influence and direction and can provide structure to pull this all together. Um, The church enlisted... The church read and recounted the ideals of Augustine's theology to maintain a framework of spiritual meaning. So Augustine's theology is going to play into this too. No man mastered these instruments of the future better than Gregory. These instruments of enlisting the spiritual militia, of using the papal office to provide some stable structure, and reading and recounting the ideals of Augustine's theology to help maintain a framework of spiritual meaning, nobody did that better than Gregory. In his book, Pastoral Care, Gregory stressed that the spiritual leader should never be so absorbed in external cares as to forget the inner life of the soul, nor neglect external things in the care for his inner life. Who's talking about a balance. A balance. A balance. And here's a quote. Our Lord continued in prayer on the mountain, Gregory wrote, but wrought miracles in the cities, showing to pastors that while aspiring to the highest, they should mingle in sympathy with the necessities of the infirm. The more kindly charity descends to the lowest, the more vigorously it recurs to the highest. And these words, this author is saying these words were autobiographical for Gregory because that's the way his life was. Mm So it's that balance, like you were saying, how can monks be missionaries if they're always apart? And so by that Benedictine order of instituting work and working in front of and with people, it's the going back and forth between retiring to the highest, as Jesus did, and go read the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Over and over again, he went to the mount to pray. He would end his days or start his days going to the mount to pray. And in the meantime, as Gregory's talking about, he's healing and, and teaching. Okay. When Gregory died in 604, worn out after 30 years of prayers on the mountains and miracles in the cities, his epitaph proclaimed him God's consul. It was a singularly appropriate description of the man who had exerted himself to the utmost to be solely God's while ruling church and world like a Roman statesman the last of his line. So he devoted himself to be solely God, solely belonging to God, while at the same time ruling the church and world like a Roman statesman. Not long after his death, the churches came to speak of him as Gregory the Great. And in time, the Catholic Church added his name to those of Augustine, Ambrose, and Jerome to speak of the Latin fathers of the church the big deal Mm -hmm. in terms of intellectual powers alone gregory probably doesn't belong in such company as augustine ambrose and jerome but he combined great executive ability with warm sympathy for human need and if goodness is the highest kind of greatness then the church moved rightly in according him the title great certainly no other man or woman better represents the early middle ages wow so he he was a Quite a figure of humility, servanthood, and leadership. Yeah, and 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 uh, prayer, spiritual. How would you say that? Spiritual devotion, mm. dedicated to spiritual disciplines. Yeah. How old was he when he? Well, he was. They died in six oh four, and we told the date when he was 
born. Or 40. Bob, 40. 64. Interesting year. Not very uh, old, really, Mm-mm. when you think about it. Nope. So what would be space? So what are you taking away from what we've talked about here? Like what is the picture you're getting? There's a foundation being laid or or the monasteries the faith is being spread through monasteries during these middle ages. The militia spiritual term, militia. Spiritual militia. And that Gregory was kind of a founding pope for that. Yeah, and so that's what we'll be moving into. Uh, next time um, is going deeper into how that actually not so much. So we did an overview of Gregory and his life, and we know now that he was influential in driving that and helping with the organization. But what was actually happening on the ground and why did it work yeah. and how did it work and and that kind of thing. So the thought I want to place right here, because we'll come back to it. I know it's in my notes. I'll be reading it. But you have this unified empire when the Roman Empire is in power. And you have, a, as we've talked about, a, a unified, in the past, a unified government, unified currency, unified language, um, a security, right? Because you have protectors. People living in these cities had armies protecting them, and they were all governed, and it was this time of the Pax Romana of peace and all that. The barbarians invade and everything's moving. As we've looked at those maps, it's like fruit basket turnover. And we've gone through now a couple of hundred years of this. And the barbarians are bringing in. So what is the unifying factor? You know, like, well, because the church and Rome were in a sense married, because they were united and became the same, then in those communities, when... The government left, the church was still seen as the representative of Rome. I see. And Rome was something to be respected because it had had power and authority. So even though the barbarians are driving people out and they want the power, they still want to be like the Romans. And the church becomes the vehicle that helps make that happen. Because it was the structure. It was the structure in all of these places. So I don't know how you teach history of the Middle Ages without teaching that. Yeah. And, and when, as we move forward several hundred years and as we get to the Reformation and the Renaissance and the Industrial Revolution and, and the much earlier than that, the beginnings of science and all of those things, those are all influenced and taking place in mm-hmm. the context of the church. So it just gets me really excited because I feel like it's a piece that is often missing. Yeah, well, it goes back to, we've said in several episodes, I don't know how many episodes ago it was, kind of goes back to the reason we do this podcast. To remind people of what history through the eyes of faith is, to look at things on a timeline, to help us inform the future, help us inform present day based on the past. Yeah, you're, we talked about this, I think, in just the previous episode, I think it was, about how all storytelling is going to have a bias. Um, and maybe it was two episodes ago, but everything's going to have a bias. And we're trying to be upfront about our bias. 
But I think it's just cool to learn the different ways that people look at things. Yeah. Most of us usually hang out with people a lot like us. And we're told things about the people that aren't like us. And we assume that they're true, but we don't get to know the people that aren't like us. Right. Yeah. A- and so we want to show the different viewpoints with being clear about our bias comes from a viewpoint of faith. Right? Yeah. Okay. We're teeing up for the next episode. Teeing up for the next episode. All right. Do we want to do any anecdotes, any mystery? I do want to say something. We we can okay. talk about the mystery bag if you want to. But um, I just want to tell a funny story. You know, I've been traveling a lot since the last time we were together. Mm-hmm. Made a couple of long trips, and we were out in Idaho. And this kind of goes along with, like, you talking about dreams. It kind of goes along with the idea of freaking out about things. I'm not one to, eh, my family might argue with me on that. I don't normally think it. I rationalize through things. I don't freak out easily. Do you think I freak out easily? No, not necessarily, no. Okay. So, particularly, like, if, if I wake up in the night and I'm afraid of something, or if something's, like, I think scared me, then I just reason my way through it, and I'm like, okay, yeah, okay, okay, okay. And I might, my spirit might be disturbed, or my, you know, I might be a little off, but I can think myself through it. So, we're in Idaho, and we're staying with these friends, and we're in this house that's, I mean, we're in the mountains of Idaho, right? And we're in a neighborhood, but the houses are far apart. There aren't a whole lot of lights. And so the first night we go to bed in this room, and I'm very light sensitive. Like, I want all the light covered up, or I'm very aware. Like, if we're in hotel rooms, turn off the lights. If there's a red light on a microwave, a green light on a wow. on a smoke detector, or what, I, I see them, and I have to work... I try to cover up every light that I can, okay? Oh, so okay. it's as dark. I get up and adjust the curtains to cover up all the light. And yeah, so when the light, yeah. you know, like you're at the hotel and the light's right outside the window, it's like there's nothing you could do about that, and it just bugs me. So the first night in this room, we turn off the lights, and there's a little bit of light coming in the window, but not bad It's because it's a pretty dark place. So it's still very sleepable, right? And I go to sleep, whatever. Okay, night two close our eyes tim's turns off the light i don't remember opening my eyes after tim turned off the light okay and i guess we were tired had a big day i go to sleep sometime in the night i don't know if it was an hour later or three hours later or four hours later i woke up which is not unusual i have to make trips to the bathroom and i'm gonna wake up once or twice during the night but i usually have no trouble going right back to sleep i woke up and i opened my eyes and it was pitch black. It was so black that you did that double take eye thing and you wait for the light to come in. And like I said, I'm very light sensitive and there's no light. And I knew the night before there was light coming in the window. So I realized where I am and that I cannot see. Mm-mm. I can see nothing. Nope. And I'm going, I'm blind. I am blind. And so I'm just like stretching my eyes and I turn over and I. Tim, I come up and I'm like, I cannot see. He said, well, the lights are off. Like, no, I'm like, I can't see, Tim. I can't see anything. I'm blind. I think I'm blind. I can't see. I mean, this is, I'm going, I can't see anything. (laughs) 
he turns on his cell phone and goes, can you see that? And I'm like, yes. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. I can see. You were healed. <laughs> I was healed. I cannot believe it. What had happened? We found out we talked to our friends. Oh, my God. I started telling them that story, and they were dying laughing. We were all laughing about it because, I mean, I was convinced. Rational Angie was convinced I'm blind because I was opening my eyes. Every, there was no light. And I knew there had been light the night before, so I knew there was supposed to be light in this room, right? Well, what I found out was there's external lights on the house, you know, like little lights under the eaves, like people have floodlights, but these mm-hmm. aren't big lights. They had not turned them off the night before. So that was the light. The next night, they were off. It's dark. It was pitch black. It was dark. dark. <laughs> it was crazy. I think I'd be fun to wake up in that dark. It is when you know it's coming, but when you think they're supposed to be light. You think you're blind. I thought I was blind. I did. I thought, I'm blind. Something has happened to me. I cannot see. I'm blind. (laughs) So do we go to the mystery bag? Well, we know it's there. We can. All right. We'll we'll, we'll save the mystery bag to episode. I'm just going to go ahead and make a comment for the listeners. It's a brown paper bag handles on it like a gift bag like a brown one but small bigger like a little bit bigger than a, a sandwich bag like a lunch bag got brown handles on. so some green tissue and paper. some green tissue paper coming out of the top so it looks it's a gift bag with a gift in it is it a gift it is a gift well we will reveal the gift in the next episode but i want to make one more comment before this episode's over okay there's an addition to the studio that you you, I want you to find it, and then I want to tell the story about it. Like now? Well, yeah. You just glance around. You'll see it pretty easily. Uh, you have to look the other direction. He's, oh, you're almost there. You're almost seeing it. What? That picture? Okay, I'll point it out. Look look over there underneath the, the TV. You oh. Tell, exp- little- explain to the listeners what it is. It is a boxed set of the office finger puppets. Well, it's not finger puppets. But they look like little, they're little figurines. Little figurines. Four of them. Mm-hmm. They're, it's Mike, Michael Scott, uh-huh. Jim, Dwight, and Pam. Okay. The characters from the office. It's an official logoed office collector set of little people. Little people. Little people is a brand from okay. Fisher Price. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. They're so, bigger than they used to be. No, that's about the same size. They're a little bit, maybe a little bit no, bigger. No, they're bigger than they were when we were kids. Little people were little when we were kids. Okay. These are like no longer choking hazards. Right. So when producer <laughs> Wes, when producer Wes was little, uh-huh. he loved little people, the toys. Oh. Because we bought him a set of little people and it came with a VHS tape. Were they that size then? Yeah. Okay. It came with a VHS tape. And that was a movie, a TV movie. Little people like claymation, you know, like animatronic, they move them around. Yeah. And he always wanted to watch the little people video. This is before he could really talk. He'd say, oh, people, (laughs) oh, people. That means I want to watch little people. Yeah. Oh, people. And the little people VHS was narrated and the theme song sung by Aaron Neville. So oh, it was my gosh. discovering Michael and his friend Maggie. He likes to make me magically. And it was little people. Little people. And I don't remember the rest of it. So I happened to come across and Wes the Sketch 
producer Wes is a huge fan of The Office. He is. He's I watched think we like gave every, him like a whole collector set one year for Loves Christmas. The Office. So what is that? That is The Office Little People All set. of his worlds coming together. Can you believe that? Isn't that magical? That is so magical. All right. That's how we ended it. So we're going to see you guys on episode 59? 58. 59. I don't even This has care. been 58. Yes, yeah, 59. Episode 59 is coming up. So uh, we will talk to y'all soon, hopefully very soon. You'll, you'll hear from us. You'll hear from us very soon. Discovering horses and giraffes too. Discovering me and discovering you. We're little people with great big plans. Little people we've got. This has been History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. Please rate and review, subscribe or follow wherever you stream your podcast. You may also contact us and comment at onethingonly.org. Just click on the History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast tab. You can also support this podcast by checking the link in our bio at ko-fi.com. That's ko-fi.com. Thanks for listening.